Today's episode is brought to you by Maze Engineers. Visit mazeengineers.com slash brainmatters for 10% off your quote by entering the promo code BRAIN. Hey everybody, welcome to Brain Matters. This is Matt Davis. And I'm Anthony Lacanina. You sound really good today. Thank you. I bet it has something to do with these beautiful new microphones that we just got. Thank you so much to the Society for Neuroscience for choosing us to receive the Next Generation Award, uh, which we use a portion of those funds to uh, upgrade our studio equipment. So, Well, besides sounding wonderful, uh, I bet you had a wonderful conversation with someone. Nope. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're, we're done here then. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Who did you talk to today, Matt? Yeah, certainly. I had a fascinating conversation with a visiting professor, Dr. Mike Mehta from UCLA. And he studies a lot of very fascinating things, including how organisms track space-time. Whoa, wait, hold on. Space-time? Uh, unpack that for me a little bit. And by space-time, I mean space and time. Turns out organisms can track where they are in space. We've talked about the place cell before. You have certain cells in your brain that will react to particular locations in a room and uh, they will fire more frequently. And this provides a sort of map of space. There's also, turns out, cells that track timing intervals at many, many different intervals in many different parts of the brain. Um, but it turns out this brain region that also tracks space also tracks time okay yeah i mean it makes intuitive sense we can figure out where we are in physical space and, and navigate it and i guess understanding where that computation lies in the brain is would be really cool to figure out well certainly episodic memory has uh, uh some essential components including where you are in space what particular context you're in and when did this occur what time and we think this is sort of the basis of components of episodic memory particular brain regions involved in the formation of episodic memories, such as the hippocampus, are important for this processing. And certainly that's the region we're talking about today. Cool. So what is he looking for? How does he actually uh, get into this question? So as an experimenter, when you want to study something like space, you want to manipulate the variables of space, right? That's right. Yeah. Indeed. So you can look at the ultimate neural results of your manipulation. Manipulating space is uh, kind of difficult. You don't really have too much control over it. So you can't just move things in a in a room or something like that. I, I mean, you could, yes. But what if you wanted ultimate control over space? How would you do that? Uh, um, start working out so that I could be, you know, running to different sides of the room quickly and like lifting objects. This, I, you're, you're shaking you're your head. Th you're thinking a little bit too literally here. Uh, okay, so I need to think. Illiterally. Exactly. Hmm. Uh, what about... Virtual reality, my boy. Ooh, oh my God. Indeed. In the virtual space... This is, a, this is like a mouse uh, with an Oculus Rift on its head? No, I said that during the interview and he also struck me down. Oh. Uh, <laughs> uh, no, we're not talking about that, but we have this setup that has a projector that's very immersive and it looks very real. And the animals can uh, run on this ball and then they move through this virtual environment that's projected on the screen. And he has a few uh, 
foreboding words to say about virtual reality, actually. At, le- at least he raises a lot of questions that I haven't heard raised before. Oh, about the limits or some of the potential concerns, because it seems like technologically that's where we're going. We're going to be integrating virtual reality into our life. Yeah, certainly all the big key tech companies have invested quite a bit of money into this. and Nothing could possibly go wrong. Isn't that human folly? 101. <laughs> uh, but, but it turns out that the virtual reality, it changes representations in uh, particular regions of the brain that Dr. Meta is studying. And he just raises questions about what, what is the impact of these changes? Is there long-term effects? Who knows? Um, so as we begin to use virtual reality more and more in our daily lives, we should be aware of the things that it's doing to our brain. Yeah, I, I think that's really important. I mean, as new technologies emerge, it's good to know that there are some scientists that are trying to understand, you know, what does that actually do to the brain? And I am excited to travel through space-time to listen to this episode with you. So I hope I invite everyone out there. Travel through space and time and... Perk your cochlea. Yeah, <laughs> stole it from me, but yes, perk those cochlea. But before we get started, we have a brand new sponsor to tell you about. You heard us mention them at the top of the episode. They're called Maze Engineers. Maze Engineers is building custom made-to-order behavioral neuroscience mazes. Mazes have been an important tool to study animal behaviors, such as learning and memory. You probably have an image of a mouse running through a maze to find a piece of cheese. Well, these are still used today, and Maze Engineers is looking to take these tools to the next level. Shuhan He is the company's founder. He is dedicated to helping these scientists. My name is Shuhan. I founded MazeEngineers.com. Uh, we read the paper, figure out exactly what your protocol needs, and we'll replicate it exactly to the specifications. I asked Shuhan how he got the idea to start building these mazes. I needed this myself when I was working in the lab. This was like back in med school and I needed an 8 on real maze. And so the only 8 on real mazes I could order were way too small. So I, I figured out how to make them at a much higher quality and a lower cost for scientists because we worked in a really small lab. So I'm currently using an Elevated Plus maze. Uh, this helps test for anxiety and rodents. Do you currently have one of those? So the company now um, makes basically every sort of maze uh, you can you can imagine. Now, basically, what I do is I go through the literature and look at the best, most commonly used mazes, like the Morris Water Maze, and we're happy to provide those. Uh, but at the same time, there are a lot of real new cool mazes that we, we like offering as well. Next week, we're going to talk to Shuhan about his favorite customizable mazes. But until then, go check out what they've got to offer. Go visit mazeengineers.com slash brainmatters, and you can get a 10% off of your entire quote using the code BRAIN. That is a big discount. You're going to want to do that. That's mazeengineers.com slash brainmatters, offer code BRAIN. Maze Engineers, meticulously designed mazes for the creative scientist. Now let's get to the episode with Dr. Meta.
Mike Mehta and I'm a professor in the Department of Physics and Astronomy and Department of Neurology at UCLA. So our lab is, is the laboratory of so-called neurophysics where we want to understand how does the brain do these complex things in not just an experimentally sound way but also mathematically sound way. So we want to bring in those two disciplines the hardcore neurobiology techniques along with pretty powerful mathematical techniques and even these days some interesting engineering techniques like virtual reality which we can use to control stimuli and behavior in a much more nuanced way than some simple techniques that are quite powerful but this thing goes beyond that so that's basically our overarching theme to bring together different techniques right um, throughout yeah the- so i was always fascinated by mathematics and my phd was in actually quantum field theory and i was studying how the universe began and how did space time began and in particular how did time begin this is a funny question right how can you even ask the question how did time begin i wouldn't yeah right it sounds <laughs> tautology because you're using the word time in describing how time began so then i did a lot of research i wrote a bunch of papers and we came up with very surprising results about how space time began we and many other people and at that point the results were so surprising that i wondered does the human brain have the capacity to understand everything that's happening in the universe like if some aliens came here and they wrote down the equation of the universe on the board will we actually understand it now it sounds like a funny idea but you know dogs can hear ultrasound we cannot hear them butterflies can see ultraviolet we can't see it you understand certain branch of science and if you were to start telling me your recent finding i won't understand it so underlying idea for us is that if we worked hard enough we will understand everything but the question is this many abstract ideas that we use in our daily life why do we have that capacity to have abstract ideas abstract thought responding to an apple and taking a bite is not a very abstract thought perhaps but abstract ideas we use all the time in our life in one abstract idea that all animals definitely have they may not know what is numbers what is lar what is probability they may not know philosophy mm-hmm. maybe they do and they can't tell us yeah but space and time abstract space and time are ideas that every animal has so that when the lion is chasing the zebra they know exactly what is space they know how to get away with sub milliseconds tens of millisecond precision and few inches to spare at high speed how did all of us develop this sense of abstract ideas of space and time if we can understand it maybe we can understand even other abstract ideas and thoughts that we have maybe our hypothesis is that if the networks that are evolved to perceive abstract space and time the same networks are being used to develop other abstract ideas as well so we want to get into what are these abstract ideas of our space and time and demystify them how are they constructed how do we construct the concept of abstract space we want to get into it if we can get into it we can understand how mathematics came about and how other more abstract thoughts came about yeah so movement throughout space and time for an organism is kind of a fundamental exactly way it interacts with reality right exactly all animals must animate yeah if they animate they better know what is space otherwise they're wasting energy and once they're moving in space there is speed that means time has already come so there's space and time every animal has a sense of space and time on multiple length scale and time scale far and near so the birds start to go towards the nest around the sunset they know how long it will take to reach the nest depending on how far they went so they'll still have lights on they'll be able to navigate so 
These are very complex ideas. Even today with very fancy self-driving cars, we are not able to implement them with massive computers. With a tiny fly can navigate through everything and you find it impossible to catch it. Even giant brains like us cannot do that. So this is a, we believe, a little hook into getting into abstract thoughts and knowledge. If we can understand how the brain puts together all kinds of stimuli to create the perception of space-time that we all species, humans, flies, zebras, will agree on. Because if we didn't agree on it, the world will fall apart. So if we can get into it, we may have a universal idea of how the brain creates abstract knowledge. So space and time are our like hook into that system. So it sounds like from your initial research in physics on space-time, you sort of had a principled drive to continue yeah. studying that when you transitioned more into biology That's right. and how brains work. Yeah, pretty much. You know, in physics, often these days, we are relying entirely on our brains to understand physics. All the string theory and parallel universe and multiverse and all that higher and higher more complex yeah. stuff is all very fancy and complex mathematics. Yeah. Which is entirely in our brains. Yeah. Because we don't, we kind of create machines and different ways to measure the worlds where we lack a particular sensory modality right. outside of uh, looking at light outside of visible spectrum and whatnot. But there are certain things still inaccessible to us that we can't create machines, I guess, to measure at this point. Especially when it comes to thinking. How do we even make a machine? to create a certain thought when we can't even think about that thought. Well, yeah. Right? <laughs> so that's why we need to have an idea of what is that thing called thought? What is that thing called abstract thought? Right now it's just abstract. But space-time allows you to go between something totally abstract versus somewhat concrete. Because you and I at least agree on what is this space intervening between us. We may not agree on the structure of Lie algebras. I may like some kind of Lie algebras. You may not care for it. but this is something concrete. So let's talk about something more concrete, which is how this manifests in your research. How do you measure the space-time in an organism or how an organism tracks space-time? Yeah. And in particular, maybe we'll talk about the difference between how rodents do this versus humans. Right. So that has been kind of a puzzle for the longest time. Yeah. That if you look at the nature of responses in the brain region, hippocampus, which is supposed to encode space-time, they seem to be very different between humans and rodents. In one case, you have robust responses, other case you don't have. In one case, you have rhythms, the other case you don't have. In one case, there is memory. In the other case, there is space. What is the relationship between these has remained a little difficult to solve. And the way we have decided to kind of unravel this and bridge the gap is to say, can we use virtual reality? Where in virtual reality, we can start removing specific cues. We can manipulate them. We can bring in cues. We can take them out. We can monitor the cues and the rat's behavior with high degree of precision. That allows us to start understanding how space is being created. Because unlike the physical space, right between you and me, there is nothing I can do to change that space, short of turn off, turn off the lights. But even then, we'll roughly know what this space is. But in the virtual reality, the space that is created is entirely in our hands. We can make that space disappear instantly. We can make that space expand. We can teleport rats. So we can do lots of very interesting and surprising things in virtual reality, which you can't do in the real world. And by doing those things, you can understand what is that space that you and I take for granted, which we can't manipulate. Because the standard experiments in neurobiology are that you manipulate the stimuli and the neural responses to figure out how it works. The difficulty with research in space in brain was that you could not manipulate the space itself. Space was always there. Virtual reality allows you to do whatever you want with space. That's what we are doing. And I'll then bring in some 
neurophysiological techniques, recording membrane potentials in freely behaving animals. And finally, we get terabytes of data. So we need to bring in mathematical techniques to decipher how are these different things being put together on the fly. So I imagine people may be having an image in their mind of a mouse or rat with an Oculus Rift on or something. Yeah. That's not exactly what's going on here. That's right. But it's closely related. It's closely related. So in many ways, the virtual reality we have is pretty fancy. Yeah. Because if you wear one of these standard goggles-based virtual reality, you cannot see your own hands in that virtual reality. You cannot see your feet. You just see the world outside. Whereas the virtual reality we have is the one where the rat or mouse is in a room and is surrounded in every direction by a virtual screen. And virtual, visual and auditory cues are on every wall. Above him, in front of him, to his left, to his right, behind him and all the way up to his feet. So he can see the virtual scene change in below his feet. He can see his paws and his own shadow falling on the virtual image. So that makes it very, very immersive. So that's one major difference between the virtual reality that's commercially available in the one we have. It's completely, he's immersed in it. The second thing about this virtual reality that's different is that in some virtual reality systems, there is a lag. Like if you're wearing a goggle and you move your head, the time that the, the accelerometers pick up the movement of that signal and then update the scene, there's a lag. And that lag makes people nauseous many times. In our system, there is no lag because the scene is all around him. If the mouse turns his head, he sees what he's supposed to see, what he's expected to see. So the lag is removed as well. So this becomes much more immersive and much more comfortable virtual reality. Sounds awesome. <laughs> I'd like to talk about some of the neurophysiological responses we see in these tasks. It's been a while since we talked about what a play cell is and maybe can we set some context? Yeah, so the idea has been for the longest time that these neurons in hippocampus make a map using visual cues. It's been the guiding principle for the longest time. But when the rats are running in the real world, you have many other cues that are changing. So that's why that's the main reason we develop virtual reality. In the virtual world now, only visual cues can tell the rat where he is, nothing else. Unless we choose to bring in other cues such as sounds. Mm -hmm. And since the cognitive map is supposed to be made of visual cues, we thought virtual reality experiment will be the cleanest because there is no junk on the floor in virtual reality. There is just light. There is no other random stuff. Instead of that, what we found is entirely the opposite. We found in virtual reality, compared to real world with similar cues, in virtual reality, more than half of hippocampal neurons simply shut down. They didn't fire a single spike, which was very surprising, right? Hippocampus, no matter what you do, is active, seemingly. But here, with beautiful visual cues, in virtual world, it shuts down. And the remaining neurons totally lose their selectivity. They don't seem to care for any visual cues at all. So that starts to be very surprising. It starts to tell us, wait a minute, it gives us a little pause to say, how are these visual cues? How is the brain creating perception of space? It may not be the simple idea that you put together visual cues and make a map. Our hypothesis is that the reason these things are going on is because you need cues from many different modalities. And many other experiments we did started to support that idea that that's what is going on. So the map is not made of just visual cues. It requires multiple sensory modalities to come together to generate these so-called neural responses of space. And the nice thing about it is that it fits with the anatomy. The brain region hippocampus sits right at the top of sensory hierarchy 
farthest away from sensory organs, it gets input from every sensory modality. If hippocampus is getting input from every sensory modality, why won't all of them play a role in generating maps? Why will it depend on only one? It's just our bias as humans, right? Like, oh, we see the world. We think, <laughs> we think yeah. that's the case. Yeah. We, you and I think that our brain is making the map of the world based on only visual cues. Yeah. But right now, if the AC were to turn off and that hum were to go, you will instantly notice that something has changed. Mm -hmm. In fact, right now, if somebody were to do a weird experiment, which can only be done in virtual reality, that little hum that I'm hearing to my back to the right, if they were to start to shift, mm. I'm going to freak out. Yeah. Say, wait a minute, what's going on? Something's there? approaching. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think it's just that we think that our world is purely visual because we are such visual creatures. But clearly hippocampus in humans and in rodents gets input from all sensory modalities. So it must be using all of it. And our research strongly supports that yes, it does require everything to be there and everything to be consistent. Notice that in our virtual reality, when the rat is on the ball and running, it's not as if the other cues are eliminated. There is still smell on the ball. There is still texture on the ball. There is still sounds created by his footsteps. But the key thing is that those things are not in register with the visual cues, unlike the real world. And we think that lack of things being in register results in hippocampus shutting down. And that gives us interesting insights about how this network is operating, which by doing real world experiment, we would not be able to really tell. And it's kind of interesting implications even for people who are using technology, right? Virtual reality is becoming more and more popular. Lots of people are putting in this virtual reality goggles hours on end. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And if our results are right, which we see in rats and our results suggest similar things could be going on in humans too, then a large portion of the hippocampus circuit will be shutting down when they are in the virtual world. 60% mm. of it. Yeah. And the maps that they see in hippocampus will be entirely different in the virtual world than they see in real world. And we know that the hippocampus is a very plastic circuit, even in adults. So if the hippocampal circuit is showing you very abnormal activity patterns in the virtual world, both at the level of number of neurons active and the pattern, is it possible that when lots of people are putting on these goggles, their brains could be getting rewired in unexpected ways. Mm -hmm. It's suddenly the hippocampus is getting a drastically different input. And what is that going to result in? See, that's the funny thing. You see, you could say, well, virtual reality, what's a big deal? It's a, yeah. just a better television, right? Yeah, yeah. I movie. could be looking at television. Yeah. This is just more immersive. Not so. I think watching a television, even though I don't watch TV, I think watching TV is l far more natural. Mm -hmm. Far more natural. Maybe less immersive, yeah. but far more natural than virtual reality. Why is that? Imagine that you're a caveman. And you're yeah. sitting in your cave and it's a rainy day. You're seated with your back to the cave. You're looking out. There is rain and the trees are swaying. That's essentially watching television. Mm -hmm. The world is going by. Yeah. You are, have no influence on the world. What you do doesn't change the world or the scene. Yeah. The key thing about virtual reality is that the scene that you see reacts to you on a moment to moment basis. Mm. Every step you take has a very distinct influence on the virtual cues in the world. And this is a very complicated process. Right now, for example, as all of us are sitting in this room, as soon as I shifted my body posture, as soon as I moved in space, I knew two things happened. One, I moved. The rest of the world didn't all of a sudden loom in front of me. Mm -hmm. Because if that had happened, I would freak out. Yeah. But it looks the same. If the rest of the world loomed towards me, 
versus I moved in the world, yeah. I will have a very different response. Mm -hmm. That means that my brain knows that the movement that my eyes saw was due to my body's movement, not due to the movement of the world and I shouldn't duck under the bench. This mapping between the movement of the subject and movement of the world, not just in terms of light, but in terms of sound, in terms of texture, in terms of smells, that is kind of not ideal in the virtual world. And that's something our brain is not evolved to deal with. Because until virtual reality came, this map was never broken. And I believe that that is what space is about. That when I made that much movement due to my bodily movements, how much muscular force and how much eye movements and so on, I'm putting track of that that's the amount of movement in the world and that should have happened. If it didn't happen, then either something in the world was moving or there's a something weird thing, something is coming at me. It's a whole different thing. That's kind of a scary prospect. Isn't um, it? If <laughs> I suppose, yeah, should we be afraid of this? Um, if if we're suddenly having all these experiences that are uh, mismatched experiences that we wouldn't have in the real world, yeah, the inputs and stuff they're mismatched. Like, say that we have a virtual classroom or something, and people go in and they're trying to uh, they're trying to learn in an environment about a particular subject, and maybe even physically, like there's like virtual reality simulator for like surgery or something. That's right. Right. What are the implications of that kind of training and how it translates right. to the real world? I think those are great questions, and our research shows that. Clearly, these rats were comfortable. They were behaving in the virtual world as if it's real. Yeah. They were going towards the queues. They were licking the things that seem appetizing. There are other videos which are on our website. We suspend a little chandelier in the virtual room. The rats stand up in the virtual room to touch it. Yeah. They seem perfectly nice. They seem perfectly comfortable. They are engaged. And still, these amazing, abnormal responses are happening. Mm -hmm. So, my role as a scientist the first and foremost thing for me to say, hey, wait a minute, based on everything I know, I better really understand this before we do a massive experiments where millions of people do this. Maybe this is benign. Maybe this is even beneficial. Mm -hmm. Maybe shutting down hippocampus and rewiring is good for the brain. Yeah. Maybe it does nothing at all. Maybe it's actually bad for it. Given that hippocampus is so fragile, you know, hippocampus is responsible for autism, ADHD, Alzheimer's disease, epilepsy, PTSD, all kinds of diseases. I would like to really understand what are the long-term consequences at the level of single neurons when the subject experiences virtual reality for a long time. Does it actually rewire the network? Is it good? Is it bad? Or is it just nothing at all? All I'm going to say for now is that this is definitely something which all of us should very soon understand. We should not postpone it for 30 years because by the time people have used it for 30 years, then I don't know what the consequences might be. So it is here and now that we need to do this. Yeah. Yeah. Is it good for children to use virtual reality where their yeah. brains are even more plastic? Yeah. Uh, is it good for somebody who is prone to epilepsy where hippocampal activity patterns are very different? Is it okay for them to use virtual reality or with it? It'll have kind of, they'll be kind of close to the edge and it'll yeah. push them over the edge. I don't know any of this, but these are the thoughts that come to my mind and I want to really understand this. To, we want to do longitudinal studies to say what is going on. And these are not easy. They are hard to do. Mm -hmm. But 
We and others need to do this. I believe we should do this and figure out what's going on. Why such enormous impact, right? Not just from the point of view of uh, everybody in lay population, whether they should put on goggles mm -hmm. for entertainment, for education, for military purposes, where people are flying drones or for surgeons, which are learning techniques, but also from the point of view of basic science, basic curiosity, even if you're never going to use virtual reality. What is this space that we all take for granted and we are interacting with each other in space? We walk in space, we don't bump into each other. What is that thing? We can shake hands without hitting each other with our fists. What is that space that we are taking for granted? How is it coming about? So I think Virtual reality definitely has a good thing, which is allows us to ask questions which otherwise we simply took for granted. We could not ask that question. Yeah. So it's both, it has both sides to it. Mm -hmm. And I believe we have simply scratched the surface. Yeah. Do you think people would say, we haven't gotten to the right point in virtual reality, we can fix it by something crazy like, we need to have complete control over all sensory modalities, not sure. just visual. And yeah. Uh, it, uh, very difficult, certainly, but complete control over all senses. And then sure. we've entered the, the the right kind of virtual reality or something, yeah. right? Yeah. It's possible. <laughs> but <laughs> no. you know, right yeah. now, everything that we found was very surprising. Yeah. Right? I don't think there was anybody who would have anticipated any of the things that we found. At least to my knowledge, there is no paper which said, hey, if you go to virtual reality, hippocampus is going to shut down big time and maps will be destroyed. Yeah. Not one person had ever suggested this. Yeah. So given the past history and then our additional discovery that neurons are coding brief segments of time and time is generating space, that neurons are responding to different visual cues in an egocentric frame rather than a allocentric map. I think this is, I would say, this is the largest number of surprises that we ever discovered within a span of three years. Mm -hmm. So I'm not going to really speculate about what will happen. Yeah. If you do add other things, I don't even know how to add these different things yeah. because, you know, it's easy said than done. Yeah. So I'm, I'm all interested. I want to work with virtual reality companies, with other people. It's clearly much bigger than our little lab. And we need to all work together to build newer virtual realities yeah. and then test what the neurons are doing, which yeah. is much more difficult to actually do and then and kind of interpret. It takes years to do that. So we need to start doing it. Mm -hmm. And so was it really driven by this uh, new technology and uh, I guess new approach that people haven't done before? Or was yeah. there hints of that? I think it know? was a combination of yeah. things. First and foremost, I was very fortunate that like a dozen very bright people mm -hmm. with very different expertise. Some people knew virtual reality hardware, somebody knew software, somebody knew right psychology to train them to wear a harness and not jump off and believe in it. Mm -hmm. Some people who knew surgery, some people knew electrophysiology, some who knew sophisticated mathematical analysis. They had to come together. Otherwise, this was not possible. Technology aside, it needed people to work together. So that was my biggest blessing. So these people trusted me to say, hey, we are going to spend five years in this project where we don't know what's going to happen. So that's number one. Number two is indeed the fact that they are faster computers and which can render this beautiful and very believable virtual reality. You saw the videos. It looked very compelling. Mm -hmm. So compelling that even a rat could buy into it, not just a human. Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah, absolutely. So that definitely helped. And then I want to say one more thing. 
which is very sophisticated math. Under the guts of this thing, just like you haven't seen the guts of virtual reality, tens of thousands of lines of codes which you haven't seen. There is equally large effort in terms of the mathematical techniques we developed to decipher the data. If we had not done it, this thing will just look like noise, look like things are busted. And if when things look busted, it could easily be maybe somebody didn't plug in the cable for virtual reality and that's why it looks busted. So it needed that additional thing to pull these things together and say this is not just some measurement error, this is actually real. So it's kind of an interesting confluence of things mm -hmm. yeah. that made this possible. And a little bit of intuition, very little. Yeah. Because we, I kind of anticipated this may not be as simple as that. So several people before us had used virtual reality and the assumption was that everything will be fine because you took care of light vision and we are mostly visual, we should be fine. But I was not entirely convinced that will be the case because anatomy tells us hippocampus gets every input. It always puzzled me that if every input comes in, how come it all depends only on vision? Can it really be true? So that's why we did one more thing that nobody has done, which is to build a real-world maze which look exactly like the virtual maze. So we could do head-to-head -head comparison. If we had not done it, we wouldn't find any of this. So is there a technology or technique coming in the future that you're really excited about that you think can answer questions that you cannot right now, or maybe a technology that you can envision? Right now, when we are looking at what's going on inside the brain, we are looking only at the cell body of a neuron, at the soma. That's what generates spikes. And cell body is about 1% of all the neurons. 99% of neuron is dendrites and axons, but mostly dendrites. Axons are thin. Dendrites are very elaborate. We identify different neurons based on the dendritic arbor. Purkinje cells look very flat. Hippocampal pyramidal neurons look like palm trees. Hippocampal interneurons look like starburst. Mm -hmm. We identify them based on it. And our hypothesis has been that these dendrites do really fascinating things based on work done by many people, including the pioneer here, Dan Johnston, who has done amazing discoveries about dendrite. But it's not been possible to measure what's going on inside the dendrite while the animals are going around naturally because of technological hurdles. So we are investing a lot of our efforts in measuring what's going on in dendrites in freely behaving animals, especially dendrites far away from the cell body. Mm. It's a kind of no man's land. Nobody knows what goes on there because yeah. no existing techniques can do that. And these new electrodes we are developing using nanotechnology, they seem to be giving us, We have I showed you some recording, they reveal something fascinating going on inside the dendrites, which nobody has before ever measured. Mm -hmm. So I think that technology will start revealing why the hippocampus is shutting down in virtual reality. What exactly is going on? Where does the trouble begin? And how can we, if at all, reactivate it? Um, I'm sure you've done some virtual reality yourself. Uh, <laughs> what was your experience given uh, what you know about it? And will you continue using it? Uh, I have never used virtual reality recreationally. Yeah. And I'm not in a hurry to do so. Yeah. <laughs> uh, partly because I don't have time. Yeah. Right? I mean, I don't even watch TV. I mean, it has existed for a long time. Yeah. I don't think it's because it's unnatural. I just don't have time. Sure. But I have used the virtual reality we had developed for the rat. Okay. I stuck my nose in it, my entire head inside the virtual reality. Yeah. Where the rat's head will be. And then with my hand, I kind of walked it like the rat would walk. And I must say, it looks very compelling. Okay. Yeah. So anybody, if you ever happen to be in Los Angeles, stop by. Yeah. And let me stick your head. It's in a sound insulated room, in a light insulated room, mm -hmm. which is, there is no echo. It's very compelling. 
like you can feel the world all around you. It's yeah. pretty immersive. And that's what surprises me even more. Even though it's so compelling, you see this massive effects. Yeah. I don't know what will happen if you were to put a crummy virtual reality. <laughs> <laughs> sure, sure. What do you like about being a scientist in general? What compels you about this uh, career path? I think the main thing that is interesting about being a scientist is that you can take on a really, really challenging problem and work on it pretty much for your entire life. Like I started my graduate school asking how space-time began. And then in a long-winded path, I went from there to what is quantum physics and how does the brain create the perception of abstract thought to what is space-time, how does the brain perceive space-time. And now all of a sudden we are doing virtual reality. So I think the great thing about science is that you can, and it's a luxury that human beings have provided to a fraction of human beings. They've trusted us to say, hey, you guys can do something really esoteric. It's going to take you a very long time and it may not have any practical benefits at all, at least in the foreseeable future. In our case, we have revealed something that might actually be of practical use very soon, such as this shutdown of neurons. The jury is out there. But that's not what I was going for. I was not interested in investigating is virtual reality healthy or beneficial or not. The good thing about science is that it allows you to do this thing which made humans and apes special. What made humans and apes special is that we were curious. When we had enough food and drink, we didn't just lie down and sleep. We went around and poked that little thing. So what is that thing? What is that stick? We broke it. We threw it around somewhere. We dragged it on the floor. And what we are doing is a continuation of it. I think it just allows me to be curious and figure things out. And it's, science is not just idle curiosity. Because if I was simply idly curious, I'd be much better off going to the library and going from A to Z. There are so many books, there is so much knowledge that I don't know. So science is something about curiosity to create knowledge rather than simply consume knowledge. And that's an interesting feeling to create knowledge through curiosity, which starts to resonate with this whole spatial exploration. When the animals explore space, they're not just simply curious about space, they're actually exploring space and they're creating some perceptions on the way. So kind of the experiment itself does something to the experimentee. <laughs> <laughs> That's wonderful. Um, do you have a principle or a philosophy of how you conduct your research, how you engage in research problems and how you overcome obstacles? Yeah, that's a great question and I still haven't figured it out. So that's a short answer. Yeah. But one common theme that I have seen over many years that I've been doing this research is that being, good, being a good scientist requires one to be three different things at the same time. On one hand, I need to be very, very scholarly. I need to know the literature very well. I can't just start doing stuff. Because most likely if I just do stuff, it'll be either irrelevant or it'll be already done or undoable. There's only a small chance that if you don't know the literature, you will end up doing something really cool. You don't want to do it. It's too wasteful. So on one hand, you have to be very scholarly. But the amount of stuff there is to read is so much that by the time I've finished reading it, there is new stuff. So in that case, you need to be a little bit of a risk taker. So you know, I have got a decent idea. I'm just going to go for it. So there's a little bit of an explorer, which is not exactly the same as a scholar. Then on number three is that you do an experiment or some analysis or some piece of math. You see some little bit of stuff and you have to be a complete egotistic maniac to say, man, I discovered the biggest thing. This is the biggest discovery. And then when you go to sleep, you got to be the real nasty guy. <laughs> say, maybe it's an artifact. 
Yeah, yeah. And I need to get up tomorrow and check, is this an artifact? Is this completely random stuff? Is it just noise? And then start the loop again. How am I going to figure out if it's an artifact? I got to go back and look at stuff carefully. So I think that's that loop is what I wish students who go to grad school are told. Then you need to have these four things in you at the same time. So if you find like don't just read all the time or don't just discover do experiments all the time also doubt it don't just doubt all the time also be super excited (laughs) and that's hard to teach but if it's stated cleanly say hey that's the thing in scientific research you need to do all those four things and be cool with it so if somebody in my seminar asked me a tough question to say hey that need not be because of this it could be your because of your Virtual reality is busted. I should not take it personally because I have only not, I have imagined only so much. My imagination is limited. And I think that's the most important advice I can give to anybody. Have four personalities, not one. (laughs) Wonderful. I I guess we sort of already alluded to this, but do you have a pursuit outside of science, maybe even intellectual curiosity outside of your main uh, scientific research? And uh, does one inform the other or? Yeah, I I find like anything which is fairly complex, my brain immediately goes towards it and I want to understand it. Yeah. So I read science news from all walks of life, whether it is the latest interesting discoveries about gravitational waves, but that's close to me because I'm in the physics department. It's an amazing discovery. Mm -hmm. And I have listened to it. If you haven't done it, go online and listen to the sounds of black hole collapsing. Yeah. It's an unbelievable experience. It happened millions light years away. Mm -hmm. Like thousands of suns worth of, or no, 30 suns worth of energy went up in smoke into nothing in no time at all. You can hear it. Why is this enormous space and time? What is that stuff that we sitting here on this tiny iota of a planet can hear it and make sense of it? So that's one thing I read about and think about. Climate is a big thing all around us. You notice patterns that's going on around you. Uh, Stuff outside politics, there's interesting stuff going on. Apart from simply complaining about good and bad things are going on, it's worth thinking about what are these patterns? Why did America end up in the current state that we are in rather than blaming an individual or the other to look underneath and say, why are we here? in this place and what should we be doing to never get to this place again yeah (laughs) (laughs) which uh we seem to be bad at doing that we seem to repeat and i think that's because it's another complex system it is and when we deal with politics we think oh bad guy bad person don't do this rather than why did that situation happen why did we get there can we understand it and fix the system at a systemic level so it goes there organically yeah and then rhythms that's the other thing i do time yeah time is my all-time obsession i began with how time began and rhythms are one place where there is time is it's all there is to it Mm -hmm. i can be tapping this table there is the same town same tone every time i tap it you can create all kinds of sensations yeah so i play all kinds of things to create rhythms and I find it fascinating and partly I'm fortunate that I like Indian classical music which I grew up with Mm -hmm. and they have incredible rhythms yeah there are these human beings which sit in place and they play tunes or rhythms which are like 13 and a half so it takes like a minute to repeat 
and they are precise as hell. Mm -hmm. Why do they have this ability? Why do all of us have the ability to have rhythm? There are rhythms everywhere in the body. There is rhythm in the heart, there is rhythm in the breathing, there is circadian rhythm, there is rhythm in walking, rhythm in limb movement. Why these rhythms? Why do we enjoy them? Why are rhythms, rhythms pleasurable? Because one common thing about music is rhythm. Why is rhythm pleasurable? Mm -hmm. So I think a lot about it, I play that, and maybe I'm going to do some experiments about rhythm someday. Cool. Uh, have you done any uh, thought about doing imaging experiments? What do you think about those? Yeah. Like calcium imaging, uh, population imaging? Uh, we are interested in it, actually. We started by building calcium imaging things. Yeah. We might still do it. Yeah. But I've been sitting on fence and I haven't really put my feet in it. Yeah. I've been reading about it. And the reason is because I believe head fix, let's say, use some mini scopes and let them walk around. Yeah. But and maybe I study visual cortex and so on. Maybe it's possible. Yeah. But still, I'm not doing it because calcium is a second messenger. The first thing is a spike. Yeah. And at least to my knowledge, nothing is available that can give me reliably spikes and even membrane potential in at least head fixed animals, if not freely behaving animals. And you know, evolution made mammals, neurons in mammals generate spikes. So it is very precious. And if I have a technique that can measure spikes, if the other technique gives me something that I can measure only in the superficial cortex, like imaging, I can't go deep, I have to head fix them. And at the end, I measure calcium, the second messenger, and my resolution is 50 milliseconds or so. And maybe, I, I don't know. I'm yeah. not too like desperate to go there. Yeah. Instead, I'm going to invest my energy in nanotechnology to get down to dendrites yeah. and measure the membrane potential there. Yeah. Because I think there's a lot of interesting and very cool science, like totally un unknown. It's like walking in a rainforest and studying the rainforest by looking just at the base of the tree, mm -hmm. never knowing what's going in the canopy. It's, it's as amazing as that. Yeah. And by doing this dendrite business, I think we can add to the dialogue stuff that's not available. So yes, I've considered calcium imaging but yeah until we can go deep in the brain and measure you know without damaging the tissue above and measure the, the resolution of spikes i don't know i'm not too keen if i can pose a question in a well-defined way maybe yeah. i'll go there it's like what einstein said somebody asked einstein how do you solve a problem how do you go about it because he was a pretty smart cookie and he came up with new answers and he said that if somebody were to put a gun on my head and say solve this problem in next one hour i'll spend 55 minutes thinking about what is the right question to ask once you've figured out the right question then five minutes is enough to solve so i think i'm not going to go by technique i'm going to go by question first what is the right question and then i'll think of the right tool so i need to be convinced there are questions i want to solve for which i need to use that technique be it what may be i think einstein's a good way to go out on <laughs> and we're out of time so thank you very much this is great, great. thank appreciate you appreciate it yeah. all right Thanks again for listening, everyone. That's going to do it for today's episode. If you want to learn more about the science or scientist, head to our website, brainpodcast.com. You can follow us at Brain Podcast on Twitter. We're also on Facebook. And if you like the show and want to support us, you can go to iTunes and leave us a review, and we will love you forever. We have a gigantic stack of Brain Matters magnets that we are giving away for free. So send us a message and we will send you a free Brain Matters magnet today. We want to thank once again our newest sponsor, Maze Engineers. If you go to their website, mazeengineers.com slash brainmatters, 
and enter the offer code BRAIN, you can get 10% off your entire order. To any of the behavioral neuroscientists out there, go check out their website. Their mazes look amazing. Mazeengineers.com slash brain matters, offer code BRAIN. For the music on today's episode, the beginning of the show, we had the song I Dreamed of a Palace in the Sky by Equip, and you're listening right now to Noya by Sangam. These artists are both on the Dream Catalog label. Check out their music at dreamcatalog.bandcamp.com. Thanks again for listening, everyone. We'll see you next time.